up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast, where we talk about all things related to athletic performance, rehabilitation, and wellness. Today, Dr. Brett Furstel is going to be your host, and he is joined by his brother, Brandon Furstel, and they're going to dive deep into speed and agility. What's the difference between speed and agility? What are the key steps to make an athlete faster? How do you design and implement uh, speed and agility programs? And what's the difference between working with youth athletes and collegiate athletes? If you are an athlete or a practitioner that's interested in helping athletes get faster, you're really going to enjoy this episode. Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Brandon Furstel. No, we don't just have the same last name by coincidence. We are, in fact, brothers. Brandon is the Director of Sports Performance at Elite Sports Performance in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. He graduated from Carroll University with a Master's of Science in Exercise Physiology with an emphasis in Strength and Conditioning and began his career in collegiate sports to his current role at a private facility in Sun Prairie. He has a wide-ranging skill set in Strength and Conditioning, working with athletes of all ages and abilities, as well as specialist certifications in track and field and golf. Brandon, thanks for coming on today. You and I have talked a lot of shop over the years, and I know I've learned a ton from you personally as I began my career in strength conditioning and now as a PT. Uh, our listeners are surely in for a treat with this episode and will walk away with at least a few pearls of wisdom I know. Uh, so we always start with asking about how did you get into sports performance in the personal training world, and I'll let you run with that. When I was younger growing up, um, I played a couple different sports, and usually when you're a little bit younger, playing some sports, you have your different idols that are in college or professional or even high school that you look up to, and I had the goal of moving on to the next level within one of the sports that I played. I also, when I was in middle school, really started getting into um, just working out, living a healthy lifestyle in general, and as I got to the point where um, I started getting into high school, I started realizing that I was a pretty mediocre athlete for <laughs> all the sports that I played. And I still wanted to be um, in a profession as I got older that still kind of helped me be around athletes, but I didn't really know what to do. So since I, I enjoyed working out and um, fitness in general, I thought, all right, I'm going to be a physical therapist working with athletes. Because at the time, that was pretty much the only profession that I kind of thought kind of blended the two together. So I think I was a freshman in high school and uh, already kind of looking at what I wanted to end up going for for school. And again, physical therapy ended up being it. I didn't really want to go the personal training route because that was working with a little bit more of like general population where the athletic population really interested me. As I ended up getting into uh, college, I ended up looking at a couple of different schools, but Carroll University ended up being the one that really caught my eye because going into physical therapy, they had a directed bit program that I was in. Once I ended up getting to the point where uh, we had to apply for grad school our, about midway through our junior year, I had to go through some job shadowing at different sites. And the first one I was at was a PT clinic, working with kids. Uh, a lot of them played sports, and so it kind of um, seemed like something that I would want to end up going into. And then the next two settings, there was a uh, nursing home setting and then just a typical inpatient setting. A lot of those experiences kind of turned me off completely from the profession because I started to realize that I didn't really want to work too much on the rehab side. The sports performance side and just training to get bigger, faster, stronger was always uh, something I wanted to be able to work in towards. And so my junior year, um, about halfway through, I had a, a little bit of a doubts that I wanted to be a physical therapist and I didn't really know what else to be able to go for for a route. 
my friend Kevin, he was a year older than me in school. And um, he basically kind of went through the same predicament where he initially was going for physical therapy, decided to be able to switch over into strength conditioning. And luck has it, I ended up finding that Carol had a strength conditioning program, um, mainly exercise physiology that they started up that year. And so I was able to enroll in um, grad school the following year, did a second year to be able to get my degree, and that's history. Well, I know we always took similar routes because I'd follow yours, but uh, I guess I was the one who became the PT and you're more the strength <laughs> strength realm. So that's a, I'm glad to hear the, the background on it because I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners are pretty much the same, is physical therapy isn't always just working with sports, is if you were an athlete growing up with it and you did it, it there is a lot of different avenues to it. Um, and it's really what you make of it. And strength and conditioning is an awesome profession too. And that's why I'm glad we are hopefully experts in two different sides of things so we can help each other out a lot of different ways. So currently now you're over at uh, Elite Sports Performance and Prairie Athletic Club. What does your role um, as a performance director really entail? Well, first off, I always think that I am extremely lucky to be in the posi position I'm at. I love going into work every day. I don't care if I'm working 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day. I go in with passion. I leave with passion. Uh, with being a performance director, uh, my role right now is pretty much exactly how I like it. Uh, my boss, Kevin, is our entire program director. So he deals a lot with more of like the business side, um, emailing parents, working on different things along that route, which is awesome for me because I am not very interested in the business side of it. Uh, the training side, the programming side, everything like that is where my passion's at. So within being the um, director of performance, I do majority of the training. Uh, we have other coaches that are on staff that do a lot of training also, but for the most part, I'm uh, kind of like the lead for a lot of different teams, working with a lot of different individuals or groups. Um, on the programming side, we have a lot of different classes and I absolutely love um, having the opportunity that, that I do because I'm able to kind of work a little bit more on the programming side and really get creative with what I'm doing and then um, develop more of a system. The couple different classes that we have at Elite Sports Performance, uh, we have a youth group class, which is more of everyone's kind of doing the same thing. It's a progressive program, but it's a little bit more like general. We're working on different things that uh, certain ages between like 10 years old up to 13 kind of need to work on in my eyes. We have custom classes for some of our older athletes that uh, we run everyone through an assessment, but their programs are a little bit more um, particular on what I saw in the assessment, what their sport is, what goals they have. So I'm able to kind of um, play around a little bit with different programming styles based off the athlete and their position. We have speed and agility classes where I've really been able to hone in on certain things that I know, um, be able to work on that. I'll find out things that I don't know, be able to learn a little bit more to be able to program different things within our classes to really develop a good system within that. We also have a conditioning class, which is awesome. Again, really helps me kind of expand my knowledge within my programming. And we also have a vertical jump class. Um, so same thing, being able to do a lot of different research in different topics within strength and conditioning and really work on the programming of everything. Again, if there's things that I, I like, awesome, I'll keep it. If there's things that I don't like, then I'll nix that. But just having the opportunity to work on so many different areas is really, really um, down my route because I can really hone in on my skills of being a coach and getting better at the art of programming. Nice. So it sounds like you have a lot of different things that you do um, and you seem really passionate about it, which is awesome. I'll let you go ahead. Yep. So within that too, um, aside from training and programming, I also run through assessments within athletes. 
Um, I go through filming or editing videos for our exercise database that we'll put in the programs so athletes can see that. And then it helps a little bit more when they end up coming in. So we don't have to go with teaching from square one. They have a general idea of what equipment they need and what the movement's going to be. And then uh, finally, I do a lot of education for our interns and also our staff. And so that's a big part of what I love doing too, that um, as I've had more people under me, it's really fun to kind of share my knowledge and um, kind of help them through things that I kind of struggled at when I was in their position. Nice. Yeah. So I think that's just a good continuation of you have a lot of different avenues or I guess um, areas of expertise in how you coach. It's not just all weightlifting or it's not just all um, speed agility training or anything like that. So you give a lot of a broad spectrum, I guess, of a lot of questions that can go on. One that I do want to touch on is you mentioned you have different classes for like fundamental uh, training for younger kids as well as more specific. I know a lot of the trend, at least in what I see, is a 10-year-old kid will want to be really specific in baseball or basketball or one sport that they'll play year-round because that's how they think they'll get better. And then they'll try to seek out the most specific training for that to help get them to be at their top level. Working with some of these younger athletes, do you think it's important that they do you get some specificity in the training they have, say for like an 8, 10, 12-year-old athlete? Or do you think they benefit more from just well-rounded, structured programming and fundamental movement skills? Well, I definitely think that, um, I mean, within the kind of uh, private performance side, we do need to have a little bit of uh, some sports specificity in there within some of the training. But there's a lot of things that I end up doing within our general training where I try to make connections within like squatting, uh, just different strength movements that we can go through. So for example, if I'm working with like a 10 year old uh, basketball athlete, uh, if they can't squat well, then I try to make some relation into getting the squatting pattern down better, creating strength within this. This is gonna help with our vertical jump. So just trying to find little ways to make connections of some of this general training that really doesn't look too specific to their sport and really letting them know like, this is why we're doing it. This is how it's gonna help you out. And as long as they understand where the process is taking them, then they're a lot more engaged and um, they understand basically why you're, you're putting them through certain things. A lot of times too, um, explain to them that there is a progression throughout their life that we don't want to start with these specific things right away because if we end up starting with, uh, I mean, a lot of different things as far as like say a specific exercise back squat, um, if we start with things in my mind a little bit too early, then as they end up getting older into high school, into college and be, uh, possibly beyond that, then that's really reducing their potential to get better within these different movements. And so uh, I always try to like explain as much as I can, create the why, as long as they understand, then everything works out a little bit better. Yeah, that sounds perfect. I know one thing that I hear uh, fairly frequently is with some of the younger athletes, they might see this really sort of sexy training that they see some of the pros or college guys doing online, and they want to train like the pros, to which I generally say, and you can tell me if you think differently, is chances are, when they were 10 years old like you are, they weren't training the same way that they are currently as a professional or a high-level athlete. So it's important to build these fundamental skills with that little bit of specificity in that. And I think a big education piece on telling them why makes them actually do it and take the time to get good at those fundamental skills so that they can peak from. Would you agree? Yep, completely. Okay, perfect. So now that you are in the private sector, it seems like you like it quite a bit. I know you used to be in collegiate athletics. So what are some of the key differences that you found in your experience between the private sector versus being a strength coach in a collegiate setting? 
Uh, one of the biggest things is your lifestyle. When you're in the collegiate setting, you are married to your job. You really don't have much of a life outside of it. And the free time that you do have, you're, work, you're working so much that you really don't want to do much in your free time. Uh, when I've been at different colleges, I've worked minimum 12 hours a day. Uh, sometimes during different inter internships, I even work 18 hours in, in some days. A little ridiculous. You don't have much time to be able to kind of do um, things that you're passionate about outside of your job if you're in the college realm. Within the private sector, uh, since I've worked with a lot more like middle school, high school athletes, you really can't train them from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So there's a lot of a lot more downtime. I can kind of build my schedule a little bit more and be able to do the things that I'm passionate about that are outside of what I do for work. Um, a second thing is the private sector is a business when it comes down to it. The college setting is athletes have to show up. They have to be there. They have to do what you want them to do. If they don't, then there's discipline action that you end up taking. Within the private setting, uh, you do want to be able to do as much as you can as far as what you believe training should go with the athlete. But if you're doing things like if they show up two minutes late and you're making them do burpees, if you're punishing them, them for the entire session, you're not going to have a client. <laughs> they're going to go home. They're going to complain about it. Um, to a certain extent, you do want to have some type of like discipline within those, those areas. But if you're being extreme, like sometimes in the college realm can be, then you're gonna end up losing business and uh, ultimately you're not gonna have a lot of fun within the sessions. Um, another thing is in the college setting, the whole season is basically mapped out. So you know your off season, you know, you know your in season, you know practice times, you know games, competitions. So when you're building more of like a longer term program, college is a lot easier. Um, I never go super specific within uh, writing like programs throughout the entire year. You have more of like, all right, this block, we're going to train this during a certain time and then we're going to pro progress to this block. But everything kind of builds on the other uh, block. And for the most part, your your program is pretty set. Whereas in the private setting, kids play so many diff different sports. Sometimes they might show up a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then the next week they're showing up on a Tuesday and that's it. And then they show up the following week don't show up the week after that. So there's so much variability within scheduling within the, the private sector that you really have to kind of be a little bit more flexible within your programming. I So yeah, that sounds very realistic. And uh, I personally am somewhat glad for you that you're not in the collegiate setting because I know that's not very sustainable. And one, you're in different states too. So it's nice to have you around a little bit more and bounce ideas off you and learn from you. Um, I've seen it a handful of times and I've had a lot of conversations with people, especially from like a rehab sort of standpoint, if, especially if they're in their later stages, where someone might think they're a, a three sport athlete, which they very well may be, but they don't separate those sports by the seasons like they typically are. Rather, they're playing all three sports all year round and then they're trying to train on top of that. Do you ever struggle to balance how much they're actually training and then they're coming in to see you to train even more? Or do you ever have conversations with them about recovery and the benefit that they need to have this recovery rather than just go, go, go all the time to get better? Oh yeah, 100%. Um, if there's some positives that happened from COVID, I think one of the biggest ones is sports got shut down. Athletes that were always complaining about, oh, my knees hurt, my ankles hurt. They had time to be able to get away from their sport, not play four or five times a week. And that was one thing that really, really helps with uh, my side where I can let them know like, hey, recovery is extremely important. I know you wanna be able to play your sport. That's awesome. We really need to be able to work on certain things. But if you're just all go, 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 then that's where injuries are gonna end up happening and that's where that pain comes from. 
So that was one of the bigger things that uh, I really kind of noticed back about a year ago when things kind of shut down. There's definitely uh, a thing within today's day and age where athletes are, in my mind, doing too much. Uh, a lot of club sports have basically, in my mind, kind of become more of a business where when I played basketball, AAU basketball was the top of the top. Now, if you got money, you're going to be able to be on a team. Uh, there's one specific athlete that I was working with. I mean, I've worked with her for uh, about a year or two. And um, just this week, just kind of talking with her a little bit more, uh, she has uh, a parent that basically pushes her into doing a lot of different things. So I was training her on Wednesday. She was playing basketball for an hour, uh, hour and a half on her own before the training session. She came in, we trained for an hour, and then she told me, yeah, I, I have to go home. 45 minutes later, I have to go to basketball practice. Once I get done with basketball practice, I have to go to dance practice. And it's so much stuff that's piled on top of each other that her dad wants me to be able to work on conditioning with her. If she's getting that much activity within the day or within the week, I have to be the smart person and be like, no, this isn't what she needs. Piling on more stuff is not gonna make her better. It's just gonna bury her in the ground. Yeah, I think it's a important topic just to voice out there because I'm seeing it more and more myself. Um, and that's just in my PT setting, which you can, I, I guess, think of being less intense versus a strength and conditioning is a lot more intense. So I'm glad and hopefully people can listen a little bit and realize that recovery is just as important, if not more than the actual training you're doing. And you need to have a balance between the two. So as much as I'd love to dive into just pure strength and conditioning, because I do love it, I do want to pick your brain on a topic that I don't see a lot of coaches dig too far into. And that's the topic of speed, agility, and quickness. So first, uh, what's the difference between speed and agility? And then second, what all goes into your thought process when you design a SAQ session with a different group of athletes? So speed to me is just outright, how fast can you be? How much ground can you cover in as little time as possible? So it doesn't matter what direction you're going, forward, backwards, side to side, multi-direction, just how fast are you? Agility to me has a lot more of a reaction component. So it incorporates things of either like uh, audio reaction or visual reaction, um, basically kind of putting a little bit more of like change of direction and having to react off of something into certain movements. Um, as far as my thought process goes, um, first thing I guess as far as like programming is how many days am I gonna be able to train you per week? That really kind of determines how I'm gonna split up my sessions. For example, uh, I'm working with a soccer club right now and we're only training together one time a week. There's so many different things within speed and agility that I wanna be able to hit on, but if we only have an hour per week together, there's gonna be things that we're gonna get left out. It sucks, but at the, at the end of the day, if you train things in speed and agility, you train change of direction and you have high effort, high intent with all these things, you're gonna get faster. You don't need to work on every single little thing under this umbrella and I'll kind of go in um, in a little bit of like what some of those things I focus on are. But if we have uh, multiple days per week that I can kind of split it up a little bit more, let's just go with a typical, we got two days a week to be able to train. I like to kind of split it up into like a linear and then a lateral day for the two. Um, within these, if we kind of split it up into different sections like that, I always try to have within my sessions some type of like progressive system. So we start slow within certain positions. Once we can build a good pattern within those, then we just kind of um, add different layers on top of that to kind of build skills to the end of the session where we're working on a lot more of like visual reaction, working kind of off different athletes' movements and learning different uh, skills from, from that mindset. So with a session, I'm just gonna kind of take you through, uh, I'm not gonna go through like a specific linear lateral, I'm just gonna kind of generally kind of talk about both of them together. 
after we end up going through a warm up, what I like to get athletes to be able to get into first is getting their athletic position down. To me, that athletic position, flat back, slight bend in the knees, slight forward lean, very, very important to be able to hone in because a lot of things we're gonna do as far as change of direction, if you can't get in that position, if you're rounding your back, you're not gonna be able to get out of uh, your positions very quickly. So first I kind of hone in on working on athletic position. From there, uh, speed and agility comes down to accelerating, decelerating. From here, I have a drill that I call a lean drill. It's gonna be a linear one and there's gonna be a lateral one. First, I'll have them start in an athletic position. For the linear lean drill, I'll have them step forward and get into a position that's similar to like a deceleration position. So as they step forward, I want them to kind of maintain that same posture that they had in the athletic position. I want to have a backward shin angle, not a forward shin angle because forward shin angle is more for acceleration. So again, the athlete starts in athletic position, they step forward, they get that uh, reverse shin angle. Then with that same leg, they step backwards and they work on getting both shins in a forward shin angle. So again, just kind of getting them used to, all right, maintain your position, work on this deceleration, this acceleration. After that, we'll end up moving on to a lateral lean drill. For this one, same start athletic position. And I'll just have them work on just reaching side to side, getting used to kind of shifting their weight, getting their knees outside of their feet and seeing how aggressive of a shin angle they can get to. Um, after we end up going through some of the, the basic uh, positions there, I always like to start out with uh, different short accelerations. Uh, if we're doing uh, like an hour speed and agility session, as a coach, you're usually not running through all the drills yourself. So you need to be very, very aware of what you're putting them through. For speed or agility, if fatigue is one of your main things that you end up seeing within your athletes, you're not giving them enough rest, you're making them sprint way too far, then fatigue is one of the biggest things that allows athletes to not go 100%. If you're not going 100%, you're not gonna get faster. So effort and intent is huge on those. So with that, when we end up starting the session, I try to go through like short little sprints. Uh, typically we'll start from a couple different directions. Uh, I have athletes work on a front, a side, and a rear start. And typically only sprinting about five to 10 to maybe 15 yards with enough rest in between. Because again, you, if you gas them out right away in the session, everything you do after that is not gonna be good. You're not gonna be creating speed. You're essentially just kind of creating more of a conditioning session. After we end up going through some of the acceleration positions, once I get them to be able to have good torso angles, good shin angles, then I start building in more deceleration because to me, change of direction happens from, if you know your acceleration position, all you gotta do is you slow down, you get into your acceleration position as fast as you possibly can, re-accelerate out, and that's how you, you create speed. So again, I start with creating these different forward, lateral, and rear start positions. Once we end up building those, then I have them decelerate. After those look pretty good, then I usually begin with some closed drills. So closed drills are more of the athlete knows where they're starting, where they're stopping, in what position, and typically uh, what foot they might stop on. With the closed drills, uh, these are not reactive in any nature. And so um, eventually I try to progress to more reactive drills, but within these ones, I just wanna make sure that, again, positions are getting down, um, angles are looking where they, they should be. I'll have them, for example, start on a line. We might be in a staggered stance. I'll have them sprint forward, maybe five, 10 yards. They'll stop, they'll break down, pause. If they get to that pause uh, position first, it really helps me kind of correct certain mechanics. So if they're leaning forward too much, um, they're still letting that momentum go forward, then it's a lot easier to correct when they're in a static position instead of moving. From there, I got a simple little progression. I'll have them work on a one cut, 
So for example, I'll have them sprint up five yards, they're gonna plant at the five yard cone, and they back pedal back. Again, uh, keeping things very, very simple helps them and helps me really hone in on different positions and fix things if I need to. After we work on the one cut, everything's looking good, then we start working on multiple cuts. So almost like a, a shuttle style where they might sprint forward five yards, back pedal five, sprint 10, back pedal 10, little things like that to start building a little bit more speed because within speed and agility and change of direction, if we have more speed going into a cut, it's gonna take uh, more effort and uh, better positions, better angles to get out of that cut. So I always kind of start with short distances, start expanding those out. Within the closed drills, once everything's looking pretty good, then that's where I start building in a little bit more of the reaction. So these are called open drills. With the open drills, I typically have uh, the same progression when I'm going through a sprint to a stop. For the open drill for this one, they'll have their, their known starting position, but they won't know where they're gonna stop. A lot of times I'll end up using like verbal cues with this one, which verbal cues are good, but in my mind they don't have a lot of carryover into visual reaction. Um, unless, you're, unless you're a track athlete, you're setting up in the blocks and you need to react faster to the gun going off. Uh, visual reaction is gonna be a lot more important to pretty much every single sport. So I'll usually use uh, verbal cues and stuff just because it's easy as a coach. And uh, within these progressions, I'll have them start at the line, I'll have them sprint forward, and then I'll yell stop or something like that. And I'll have them try to stop on a dime in as few steps as possible. From there, once, uh, once we get that down, I'll try to throw in uh, different areas to try to make them uh, not be able to anticipate where they're gonna stop, to try to throw them off guard a little bit and see how well they can maintain their position. Once we can work on just that decel right into a stop, then same progression as the closed drills. I'll have them go through one cut at a time, Typically these verbal cues, I'll say set, go, and stop. So for example, I have them start at a line, staggered stance. On set, they're gonna sprint forward. On go, they're gonna plant back pedal. And then on stop, they're gonna decelerate. So lots of different positions you can kind of work on within that. But again, the cues I use, set, go, and stop. After that one, then we build on more of those multiple cuts. Um, so the cues I use for this one is ready, set, go, and then stop. With this one, uh, you gotta make sure you explain very, very well because uh, I've, I've noticed in the past, if you don't explain very thoroughly and repeat yourself, uh, younger athletes, it goes right over their head. You usually get a couple athletes that kind of mess up the drills right away. So explaining is huge with some of these verbal cues. Um, but for example, just with uh, the multiple cuts, I'll have them start at a line. On ready, they sprint. On set, they plant and backpedal. On go, plant and sprint forward again. And then stop, they try to shut it down and stop as quick as they can. Once we end up going through some of these closed drills and open drills, then this is where, um, in my mind, and at least uh, from the athletes' reactions, this is where the fun time happens. At the end of the session, I try to build in different skills for uh, creating more visual reaction. There's a, a YouTube page. Uh, it's Elon Sports Performance, uh, basically Elon University. It's a college, not really sure where they're at, but very, very smart strength coaches. Uh, they have great resources for different uh, visual reaction drills. They split up their categories into four different ones. They have a mirror category, a dodge category, a chase or race category, and then a score defend. So within the mirror drills, mirror drills are basically where you have, um, say a straight line, five, 10 yards maybe. You have an athlete that's a leader, athlete that's a follower. The leader can basically do whatever they want within that designated distance. The follower has to basically try to mirror what their drills are doing and try to stick with them. As a coach, I can do things like uh, designate, all right, we can only sprint and backpedal within this drill, we can only shuffle shuffle, or it's completely up to you. If you wanna do somersaults, you wanna do cartwheels, go ahead, just be creative. 
Um, mirror drills are a lot of fun, uh, but there's some of these other drills that I think have a little bit more weight within actual creating like better like visual reaction. But as far as like a guardian stance, um, really kind of helps out kids be creative and then also working on defense and trying to stick with uh, an opponent. Um, the next one, the dodge category. Uh, again, there's lots of drills you can go through this if you want to check it out, Elon University Sports Performance. But one drill that I'll start out that's pretty basic is I'll have an athlete on offense, athlete on defense. The defensive athlete has three cones kind of set in front of them. The cones are about like a maybe a yard apart. The defensive athlete will end up standing right in the middle of one of the cones. The offensive athlete is going to run up at a certain point. The defensive athlete will step and kind of fill the gap on either side of the cones. Say they fill the gap to the right, then the offensive athlete has to react off of that and break and kind of fill the gap in the open space. The chase and race category, um, this one's very simple to do, lots of different ways you can go about it, but a simple way is just having athletes start in the same position, uh, right next to each other, say they're in a staggered stance. You have to designate a leader and a follower. The leader goes whenever they want to, the follower has to react off of that, and then essentially you have a designated sprint distance and it becomes a race after that. A little bit different way I'll kind of throw, uh, throw a difference in that is I'll have maybe the front athlete will end up starting with their, uh, their stance in a, a half kneeling staggered stance and then I'll put the, the follower behind them maybe a couple yards in a staggered stance. So the follower um, basically has to react off the, the leader's start but with the leader being a, in a like worse position as far as like being a little bit lower, they got to get up and they got to go and they got to try to win that race before the defender catches up to them. Uh, other ways I'll do it is uh, I'll have the offensive player, the leader, they'll have their back facing the direction they're going to sprint, and the follower is going to be, again, a couple yards behind, maybe in a forward-facing position, and the offensive player has to flip around and then turn into that sprint. Um, so again, a little bit of fun within that one, a lot of competition. The last category, the score or defend. Um, these are my favorite ones. You can be very, very creative with a lot of these drills. At uh, Elite Sports Performance, we're housed in uh, a facility called Prairie Athletic Club. Within that, we have a big soccer field uh, indoors. And uh, when we run our speed and agility sessions, I like using like the goalie box that we have there. Because one of my favorite drills that I like setting up is I'll have one uh, person on offense, one on defense. The offensive player is basically going to end up being like within the goal. The defensive player is going to be at the top of the goalie box. From there, I'll end up setting up any number of gates. Uh, typically, it'll end up being like two or three gates where I just set two cones down. You have a space that you have to run through. The offensive athlete, they can basically go whenever they want to. Once they end up going forward, they have to make a cut either going left or right. The defender has to react off of that and try to tag them before they get through that space. Um, a lot of different ways I've been creative within this one has been um, you have that same drill within a box. You have your two gates. You got one on the left, one on the right. You can throw a wrench in there and you can have the defender have their back facing the offensive player. And this is one where I would have to say go so the defender knows when to flip around and sprint forward to try to tag the offensive player. Um, there's different ways you can add obstacles in there. You can literally just set a dummy. Sometimes I'm the dummy <laughs> sitting right in the middle there. Um, I'll kind of change up my position and allow the offensive player to kind of use me as an obstacle to try to get away from the defender. Or you can have that obstacle kind of like moving slightly and just add another element of a uh, reaction in there. So, so I, I genuinely think I'm going to have to go back and listen to that like five <laughs> times because I think there's a million questions that I could come up and ask. But if I just re-listen to this, I think this this whole topic and just how you structure a session and give ideas of how to do things could be an entire presentation in and of itself. So what I'm going to try my best to do is summarize a few things 
And some of these concepts, I think maybe I've learned because we had the same mentors or teachers in our past, or maybe it's just coincidence. But one is first and foremost is when you're working on speed and agility, fatigue is almost the enemy. Fatigue does not instill power or speed or agility. When you want to work on those things, you need to be able to give 100% effort. Then the other one that you kind of got into is how you structure it is you literally said it word for word is you work on positions first and then you will use patterns on top of that or building skill and then lastly power or adding agility to it. I think I got this from either Matt Gifford or Jason Rowe but how to structure something is positions first then patterns and then power. If you try to work on power or patterns before position usually it doesn't end up as well and you use those exact words so I quoted whoever it was and you said the same exact thing so I think we're on the same uh, page with that then one question I do want to address is how you structured one individual session um, for a speed and agility session you didn't use or mention any agility ladders so my one of my questions I want to ask is sort of why or what do you think an agility ladder's use might be in this type of training? Yeah, so I usually don't really uh, use the word uh, agility or speed within the, the word ladder. Um, in my mind, ladders don't really build either of those categories. Um, <laughs> speed comes from having the ability to cover ground as quick as possible. That's not accomplished in majority of ladder drills. Your feet can be moving 100 miles an hour, but if you're not effectively projecting your center of gravity, your center of mass, then what are you doing as an athlete? When you're on offense or defense, uh, mainly on offense though, if you're being defended, the defender is not looking at your feet. They're not looking at, oh, what position are their feet really getting in? They're looking at your torso. They're looking at your midsection because those hips are basically your steering wheel. Wherever the, the hips goes, wherever the torso kind of goes, for the most part, then that's where the body's gonna end up going. Um, with ladder drills, a lot of things I see that I don't like too is athletes go through them. They're very, very pre-programmed. They have their head down. They're either not moving their arms. They might have one arm locked to their side and moving one of them. They might be doing a, a little choppy action called banging the drum with their arms. But um, a lot of times just coordination is not very good when people are going through ladder drills and there's not a lot of carryover into what I see for positions that ladder drills have within actual sporting movements. If I had to say anything good about ladders, uh, I might use them in a, in a warm-up. They're fun. Kids like doing them. Uh, it'll wake up the CNS kind of working on some kind of like quick ground contact times. Certain things you can do, you can work on rhythm and coordination. Uh, I mean, one of the downsides about ladder drills is a lot of times you'll see feet moving very fast and arms are moving about half that speed. Um, what are you doing as an athlete if you're not linking up your limbs? Um, other things you can kind of work on, there's different drills you can use to be able to kind of dis disassociate the hips and the torso, so working a lot more on like lateral things for change of direction. Um, you can also, uh, if you're working with athletes that are very heel strike dominant, you can get them to get on their balls or their feet a little bit more. With all those things I just mentioned, you can do them in a lot more effective ways without the ladder tool. So <laughs> I often don't use a ladder. Um, sometimes I'll throw it in our conditioning sessions because I really don't care what the kids are doing within that. Within the conditioning sessions, I just want them to work as hard as possible for whatever uh, time we're working in. And uh, a lot of kids just enjoy doing ladders because their football coaches do it all the time. Their soccer coaches do it all the time. So they think it's very, very beneficial. I try to explain them my views about it. I try not to crush their dreams about, <laughs> about doing ladder drills and stuff. If they like doing it, do it. But here's the, the reasons that you should be doing it. And here's what it's really not gonna have much carryover into your sport about. I, re I really like the, the take on it of what you call it. and. 
there's my fault in calling an agility ladder right away. I might take over the the nomenclature of just ladders. And I think that really fits the bill and what they're used for and the reasonings why. Um, I'd be happy to hear someone if they think elsewhere. Maybe I'm just not thinking in the right realm. But I love it personally. Um, go ahead. Yeah, no, there was a quote I was trying to find. There was a podcast uh, that I listened to. I mean, I don't know how long ago it was, but Buddy Morris, uh, he's in the NFL as a strength coach right now. He always calls it a foot ladder, and I can't exactly remember the quote. Again, I tried to look it up as much as I could last night because it is awesome, but um, he basically kind of goes around saying there's three coaches that you should be afraid of. The first one is I played the sport, so I know how to train it. I can't remember the other two. And then he's like, oh, and there's a fourth coach, the guy who pulls out a, a foot ladder and tells you he's going to make you faster. <laughs> so be afraid of those coaches. <laughs> I love it. I love it. There's some humor in that, and that's something that I can remember pretty easily. So um, I'll be first and foremost to say I'm, I was guilty of this, especially early on when I didn't know much about strength and conditioning, but I still needed to do a session and add some speed agility work with some of the athletes I trained. And I would just sort of randomly pick a drill and we that would be the focus of the day. I didn't really have a huge rhyme or reason behind it necessarily, but it can be pretty easy just to randomly pick drills day to day. Um, but how do you personally go about progressing uh, speed agility quickness plan over the course of like weeks to months um, when an athlete does work with you? Well, first off, uh, I mean, knowing the, the seven uh, speed and agility kind of foundation movements, these are ones that I didn't come up with. Uh, I got these from Lee Taft. He is a phenomenal resource for anything speed and agility. So if you don't know that name, definitely get used to it. Uh, find his stuff, buy his stuff, definitely worth the money. But these seven foundational movements within speed and agility, um, not including anything change of direction, it's basically just outright speed. You can accelerate, you can work on top end speed, you can work on backpedaling, you can shuffle, you can do a lateral run, you can do a hip flip to a shuffle, and also a hip flip to a lateral run. So within these different patterns, uh, when we're working initially in a program, I don't care what position you play, what sport you play, uh, what age you are, we always wanna try to get all these different movements in very sound, um, at least initially in a program when we're working on general concepts. As I kind of talked about before within how I kind of structure a class, uh, I kind of realized that my programming long-term is kind of just a stretched out version of what I do within the class. And opposite of that, my classes were more developed because uh, I kind of had to kind of shrink down what I would do more long-term, kind of working in the private setting. So uh, first thing, just like the, the class setting, I'll try to get the athlete in a good athletic position. Once they can get in a good athletic position, we'll work on different static starts. Again, I like to start with acceleration because if you know your acceleration position, once you decelerate, if you can get into those a lot faster, then it's easier to re-accelerate and change direction out of it. For the three static starts, we go front, side, and rear. For the front start, I start with a staggered stance. For the crossover start, or uh, the side start, I work on a, more of like a lateral crossover. And for the rear start, I work on what I call a rotational drop step. Um, within, within all these patterns, if you're an athlete, there's all, I mean, pretty much all any time, you're not gonna be in a completely static position. You're gonna be moving dynamically in some way, typically in some form of a athletic position. So from here, I progress those static starts into uh, directional step starts. Within these ones, I have the same starts as far as the forward, the side, and the rear. The forward start is going to be a parallel stance. All these start from athletic position. The parallel stance, you're gonna be facing forward, feet are gonna be even. You essentially kick one leg back and then sprint forward out of it. Some coaches would call this a false step. Uh, so directional steps, all it is, 
is it's a natural reaction for the body to be able to create a plant and a better shin angle outside of your center of mass to get the body moving in the opposite opposite direction. I can't tell you how many football coaches drilled in our minds that you do not want to fall step. It's slow. It's not slower. All it is is it's a body's natural reaction again to be able to create a better shin angle to project your center of mass forward. Um, we actually ended up doing a study when I was in grad school. It was a, more of like a kind of a pilot study, but uh, determining with a force plate and with time of which is faster, a staggered stance from a static position or doing more of that like plyo step, directional step, there was no difference. So all the coaches that I had in youth football that made us do sprint after sprint after sprint because someone was doing a false step, I wish they would know they would have known this then. <laughs> um, so that's the forward start is that parallel stance. For the side start, I work on what I call a lateral jab step. So same thing, you start in an athletic position. The area you're going to sprint is directly to your side. You take your outside foot, you essentially kind of lift it up, you jab out as fast as you can. That foot jabs, pushes and opens. Um, the front foot basically kind of opens up and allows your body to change direction and sprint straight forward. For the rear start, I work on a hip flip to a rotational drop step. So this one, your intended area you're going to sprint is going to be behind you. You essentially flip your hips either left or right, one foot plants out in front. As that foot plants and pushes, the opposite one is opening up, turning towards your direction you're gonna sprint. Once we can get those, those uh, either static or some of those directional steps down, then that's where I start throwing in some basic transitions of change of direction. So there's a lot of them that I'll work on. Hopefully I'm gonna hit them all. Um, the show notes is gonna be very important for a lot of these things, so make <laughs> sure you're looking at that. Our first one that I usually go through is a jog to a sprint. The next one is a sprint to a backpedal or a backpedal to a sprint. We can work on a backpedal to a hip flip into a sprint. You can work on a sprint lateral cut to another sprint, a shuffle to shuffle, a shuffle plant sprint, which is more of a closed step. So you essentially on your change of direction, you kind of cross the legs a little bit closer together. You can do a shuffle open to sprint where you're shuffling and then you open up and sprint in the same direction where the feet kind of come apart rather than coming together on that cut. You can work on a shuffle to lateral run, or you can just work on a lateral run to a lateral run. So within these, uh, biggest thing I try to focus on is getting the athlete to be able to not necessarily change their level. If an athlete is backpedaling, I've seen this happen too many times when I've been working with like hockey athletes, they don't backpedal in their sport. So a lot of them backpedal with a very, very tall posture. I've seen a couple times where they end up tipping backwards because of that. <laughs> so I give athletes that I'm working with within those patterns, specific examples like, hey, get your hips back, chest forward, nose over your toes. As we're backpedaling, if we plant into a sprint, if you're in that position, it takes a lot less time to be able to plant and get out. So if you're backpedaling, you're in a tall position, it takes more time to be able to change your level, sink down, to be able to accelerate forward. Um, different things too within like uh, our shuffle change of direction. I don't want athletes hopping up and down. There's a good cue that Lee Taft used. Uh, he says, you wanna stay in the tunnel when you're doing shuffles. So meaning, pretend you're in a tunnel. If you're jumping up and down, you're hitting your head on the tunnel. You want to stay that one level the whole time. You move a lot faster laterally if you can kind of maintain that position. Um, within some of our like lateral runs, a uh, big thing I want to focus on is, is more of like a hip flip. You want to kind of disassociate the hips and the torso. Even during certain drills that you do like karaoke, like things like that when you're warming up, if athletes are just stepping in front, stepping in back, but there's no element of a hip flip, then that's really going to end up taking away from some of their lateral change of direction movements we can do. And defensively, if you can't really flip your hips and keep your torso on your target, then you're probably going to get burned at some point. Um, so very generally working on uh, all those different, those seven foundation movements, 
kind of building into some of our starts, working on some of our simple, basic uh, change of direction movements. From there, uh, those transitions, I have similar progression that I have within the classes. We'll work on just going into a certain position and stopping. Once everything looks good, we'll start with doing a one cut with a short distance, then start building up on longer distances. Again, because doing a plant change of direction with more speed going into it is a lot more challenging, a lot more difficult. Once we kind of progress into some of these, I, call, I guess I call them like more like straight line change of direction because you really don't need a ton of space to do these in. Then we can start working on more of these like closed drills uh, that are more multi-directional. So your typical box drills, any like letter drill, like a W drill, T drill, uh, D drill, different things like that, that gets the athletes moving in more of like a three uh, dimensional pattern. Once we end up working on some of these closed drills, then same thing with the classes, then we start building in some of these skills within our open drills. Uh, once athletes are sound on a lot of these uh, general skills within speed and agility, then that's where we start getting a lot more specific. Uh, if I'm working with, say, like a basketball athlete, uh, just from playing the sport and studying that a lot, there's different things I can kind of work on to be able to put the athlete in certain situations of, uh, okay, these are the general skills we worked on, like our hip flip to our shuffle or a hip flip to crossover. Here's a scenario within a game that you might end up seeing this and might have to go through it. So, for example, I'll have uh, the athlete be put in a position where they're on defense. Uh, the ball handler up at the top of the three um, has the ball. Athlete has to sprint up, close out the offensive player. As soon as they get up there, then the offensive player dribbles one direction. The athlete has to flip their hips and either shuffle or do a crossover to be able to kind of stay with them. Uh, within those, the shuffle, in my mind, is, I mean, great defensively because you end up taking up a lot of space with your feet and with your hands. But it's a little bit slower than doing like kind of like a, a lateral run or at least a one step. So if they run up and they're able to kind of stay um, fast, react out of that, they'll be able to kind of maintain a shuffle to stay with the offensive player. If they get burned, then typically they're going to do a hip flip, they'll do a crossover, and then continue on a shuffle once they regain their position. Um, so again, uh, just really kind of focusing on how specific you can end up getting and really knowing different sports and knowing the different movements that happen within certain positions can help out as a coach kind of blending in some of these drills from general to specific. Once we get to the point where uh, some of these closed or open drills we have uh, within their sport are a little bit more similar to what they end up going through, then as we get closer to a season, then that's where I really start blending in more conditioning. Um, a lot of times I'm just going to end up working on just generally training all their energy systems. We'll work on, sometimes it might be some of those general drills, sometimes it might be some of the specific change of direction ones, but initially we'll start working on kind of generally training some of the energy systems, different work to rest ratios to kind of build power or capacity for them. Then once we get closer to the season, then we really start progressing into uh, more specific energy system development in their sport or position. Um, so I'm really kind of honing in on what do you do as an athlete within your sport and what work to rest ratios do we need to get into to kind of train what energy systems are more dominant within what you're doing. Um, a lot of stuff within that, what I just said, I've never really seen like a full system put together um, for speed and agility. Um, I've basically just kind of taken what I've learned from, again, Lee Taft, uh, Lauren Landau is another great coach to be able to look up, and Ian Jeffries. A lot of those guys great give phenomenal drills, but there's not too much as far as a structure of like, this is where you start with an athlete and this is how you progress through an entire program. So um, a lot of this stuff, you might agree with it, you might not, but these are just my thoughts, my experiences that I've kind of seen, kind of putting all my different stuff together that I've learned through different coaches and developing my own system based off of that. No, that, that sounds perfect. This is a, one of the big questions that I did want to ask just because you've delved into it a lot in your own experience and your own kind of research and everything of 
how to progress one of these sessions or how do you structure one and I've personally either not taken a course or not been educated and seen how to do these partly one of the reasons why and earlier in my career is why I just kind of picked random drills is I I didn't know how I should progress them and just like any strength and conditioning sports performance spectrum I think there should be progressions in mind of where do you want to get to at an end goal and then kind of working backwards of what things you need to work on in order to get there and I always think having a plan helps to guide or give you the railroad tracks to get there a bit easier rather than just throwing random drills all the time so you kind of alluded to it a little bit speaking on the speed agility and then getting into energy systems development is that speed agility quickness is more than just simply working on that and especially sports in general so you also are more of like a strength coach too you do both sides of things so i know some coaches who largely do strength training and some coaches who do almost all speed agility training but since you do blend the two, how do you kind of use the two to supplement one another? I think one of the biggest things is as a coach, um, understanding both areas. Uh, I know initially, like when I was in college and everything, I was very, very heavy on the strength side. I knew myself pretty well, um, but the speed and agility side is definitely where I lacked. And so I didn't really know certain drills to kind of go through for, sp for speed and agility. I didn't really know what the connection kind of was between strength and speed or agility. So I think just kind of having a, a general knowledge of both of them really helps you make connections. Strength movements, in my mind, are kind of like a slowed down version of certain speed and agility patterns. Whether we're accelerating or changing direction, there's a lot of little similarities that you can kind of find within certain strength movements that have carryover into certain sporting movements. Um, everything in strength training doesn't have to look exactly like what the movements are performed in sport because at the end of the day, strength training is all general training to support their specific movements. But I think at least being aware of what positions athletes get into when they accelerate, uh, decelerate, or change direction can really have better transfer. Little things like uh, if an athlete cannot get into a, an athletic position when I'm trying to work on them within a speed and agility session, I'm not going to spend a ton of time trying to fix that there because we have a lot more that we have to get through. If we're in the strength setting, 100% I'm going to end up really trying to get their hinge pattern down. So we'll work on things like RDLs, um, deadlifts at some point. but that's your time to be able to really fix some of these things in a slow setting because once things end up speeding up, it's extremely hard for you to correct it as a coach and as an athlete, it's really hard for the body to kind of feel out what positions they need to be in. Um, so again, the hinges really, really help out with building athletic position. If they can hinge well, then it makes it a lot easier uh, for like multi-directional lunges, which have some good carryover into changing direction in different positions. Another one, uh, like lunging, if you're doing a forward or a backward lunge, kind of knowing the why for each exercise if you're doing a forward lunge, in my mind, that's better for a decelerative pattern. If you're doing a reverse lunge, it's more for acceleration. Within knowing those, um, you can be a little bit more attentive to like shin angles and things like that. If you're doing a reverse lunge, personally, I don't like to see a super vertical shin because again, in my mind, they help with acceleration. Acceleration doesn't come from a vertical shin. It comes from a forward shin angle. So as athletes step, step back, I still want them to kind of drive their knee um, towards their toes, get that forward shin angle. And then on the forward lunge, uh, more of a vertical shin. I'm fine with a little bit of a forward shin angle on those ones, but um, those ones we just kind of want to be a little bit more aware. A lot of times too, and the, the more assessments I've done, the more I've kind of seen relations within uh, like lunging, like say like a trail leg uh, position of your lunge, that looks almost identical to when you're uh, filming someone running and their gait pattern on their trail leg, their swing leg. If an athlete does their lunges and their trail leg is extremely externally rotated, the heels inside of the foot, you're almost always gonna end up seeing that when you end up filming a, a sprint from a backside. 
Same thing if they end up having uh, their trail leg and it's got a little bit more of an internal rotation position where the heel's slightly outside of the toes, then um, that's ideal of what I want to end up seeing within their trail leg swing when they're running. And again, there's so much carryover that once you're experienced with both of them, you can really start making these connections within it. Um, things don't really change very easily. Uh, it takes a lot of time. So just trying to think about as many things as you can to be able to try to own in on these positions, help athletes understand what they need to be able to get into, really, really helps out. Um, and little things too, like if an athlete has trouble decelerating and you work on their mechanics, everything like that, and they don't get better, it could just come down to you just need to get stronger for uh, relative to your, to your body weight. So working on things in the weight room will definitely help out, have some carryover into the speed and agility. But again, there has to be a balance of both. Um, strength training, there's not, 100% transfer every single time for every exercise you do. And that's why just kind of being aware of certain positions helps you be a little bit more um, attentive as a coach to help with that transfer. Yeah, I think I think that's, that's great that you have both perspectives because it helps guide both of what you do. If you know what you do in the weight room, it helps guide what you want to do with speed agility and kind of vice versa. So I think that's a perfect explanation with a lot of that stuff. Um, so for you working in several years in a field where there is always continuous learning at play, it's relatively young. Is there anything that looking back, you wish your younger coach self knew now or knew then what you know now? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple different things. Uh, one that comes to mind, uh, I kind of mentioned it, but just being exposed to uh, more coaches that are doing things that like speed and agility, um, working on rotational power, different things that are outside of your realm. I think when I was in college, I just wasn't exposed to a lot of different, uh, a lot of different coaches and a lot of different styles of coaching. I think the NSCA really, really has like a, a big foot in the door for uh, educational systems. The NSCA is great. I'm a member of them. Um, I've learned a lot throughout them, but at the same time, if you're only looking through NSCA books and uh, their website, their articles, again, phenomenal stuff, but you're just scratching the surface. The biggest thing that I started realizing is you find coaches that are at the top of the field and what they do. Again, like people like Lee Taft, you copy what they do until you understand it completely. And then once you understand it, the why behind every exercise, then you can start developing your own system within that. Um, other things is, uh, this is something that, I mean, so many coaches talk about it, but as a young coach, you wanna be a generalist before a specialist. If you're diving right into, oh, I wanna be a football strength coach, that's not going to help you out if you're in a position where you're a football strength coach at a college and you also have to take on uh, a track and field assistant position. You're going to be pretty lost. There's a lot of similarities within training for different sports, but also if you expose yourself to different sports, um, different modalities of training, like your strength, your speed, your conditioning, your jump training, different things like that, then it helps you make all these different connections and really help the athletes uh, kind of understand the why of, okay, we're doing this. It might not look exactly like what you do in your sport, but this is exactly how it's going to help out. Um, another thing kind of going along with that is in the past couple years, I've realized that there's a lot of sports I didn't play and to help me be a better coach for specific sports, like say tennis, for example, I never played tennis and I didn't really understand some of the movements because I never watched it. I think if you just literally sit down, watch sports or even go on YouTube and type in like different things um, that like certain athletes what I'm going through for their movements really helps you have a better connection with the athletes you're working with. You can um, kind of understand their sport a little bit better. But then also if you're having them do speed and agility sessions, you can make a lot more connection of, okay, you're in this scenario, the ball goes over here, this is the move you should end up doing or um, just helping them with like different reaction abilities um, kind of based off of what you, you end up seeing. I think that's great advice for not just strength coaches, but PTs or almost anyone in general is 
kind of the generalist idea rather than uh, specific, especially right off the bat. Um, I really try to do it myself as best I can that if I stay in my own silo, I'm going to just stay in my own silo likely and I'm not going to learn new things that maybe are better or just different or alter my perspective. Because what it really comes down to a lot of times is you don't know what you don't know until you expose yourself to something that you realize you didn't know or you didn't even consider. And I think that's where a lot of growth can come from. So I'm really glad I get to be able to bounce some ideas off of you because you've definitely brought off several things today that I never even really thought of. Um, and you really offer a great perspective. And we could probably do a thousand more podcasts getting in on different topics in this one. But I think we'll somewhat end it there. Um, we do always like to usually finish these podcasts with like a lightning round to let the listeners know a little bit more about you. They're kind of fun. Um, so I'll ask you a few questions. Uh, so first one, if you a vacation, uh, sunny beaches or snowy adventures? I'm probably going to sound a little crazy for saying this, but uh, snowy adventures for sure. Um, I'm a big uh, snowboarder. I like snowmobiling, things like that. But especially with uh, snowboarding, it's kind of allowed me to be able to take uh, different trips either across the country or out of the country going up to Canada. Um, I found a great group of friends when I was in college that some of us ski, some of us snowboard. And a couple years ago, we ended up taking a trip all out to Montana for about a week. Um, we spent basically the whole week in our cabin there. It was amazing because the cabin was right on the mountain. You literally open up the garage, grab your gear, walk 100, 100 yards, hop on a lift, and then you're there for the entire day. If you want to go back home, it's 100 yards away. Um, last year, too, and I can't believe, believe this is already a little bit almost like a year ago, but last year I was in Canada in the Rockies, and same thing uh, with a group of guys. We ended up just getting a house and spent a week on the mountain, and it is absolutely amazing. I'm completely obsessed with <laughs> mountains and everything like that, and... Now that I've gotten into things like uh, like mountain biking, uh, we've done our trips every other year to to go somewhere to snowboard. And so now that I've been getting into mountain biking, I'm definitely going to end up trying to go on the off years to go out west and just kind of explore out there on my bike instead. Yeah, that would, that would be awesome. I know I think Wisconsinites, there's usually two people that or two different types of people that end out of it. It's either I grew up to hate the snow and I just want to move south and be warm all the time. And then there's those people that love the snow and just want to stay up north where at least there's some snow somewhere. And I think we know which one you are. Uh, all right. So reading or listening to podcasts? Well, for my job, I think the past probably over the four years, um, I do a lot of driving, having to travel like where I, where I have to go to work. And typically it's like at least an hour per day. Uh, if I'm just sitting in my car for an hour per day, just listening to music, I love music. But at the same time, like if I have that hour set out aside, I want to do some learning because I have no excuses. I'm sitting there. If I can listen to something, then... Um, that's an easy, easy way to be able to get into learning. A lot of times I just don't necessarily have the, have the free time to be able to sit down and actually read a physical book. So podcasts are huge for me. Um, lately I've been getting into audiobooks also, cause again, I can just plug it into my car, listen to anything that I want to. And again, it gives me a chance to be able to learn every day for at least an hour. I think, all right, that's awesome. I think I know the answer to this next one and the picture we'll use to advertise this podcast. We'll probably know too, but long hair or clean cut? Well, you pretty much hit that one on the head. Long hair has it right now. Uh, I haven't cut my hair for almost a year now. I've never had my hair as long as it is, is uh, right now. I'll probably never have my hair this long in the rest of my life. So right now I'm rocking the, the flow, but um, I'm kind of getting sick of having to wear a hat 100% of my life, even when I'm in my apartment, just to keep my hair out of my eyes. I'll even end up wearing a hat of some sort. So uh, pretty soon here, hopefully it'll be a clean cut, but we'll see how long the long hair is going to stay. <laughs> nice. I know it's been interesting to see you this, this way though for the first time in my life. A uh, couple more. Let's go. Least favorite exercise and why? 
This is an easy one. Burpees. Uh, burpees, I never really understand the point of them. If you're trying to make yourself tired, awesome. Do a burpee. If you're trying to do a push-up, do a push-up. If you're going to do a squat, do a squat. You're going to jump, do a jump. Don't put them all together. Uh, especially, uh, there's there's some athletes that I've had too that they'll, uh, they'll do CrossFit and they ask like, Brandon, why don't we do burpees? And I tell them, the only reason I could see a burpee being beneficial as an athlete is to get yourself up off the ground faster. <laughs> if you're falling all the time as an athlete and having to train to get up off the ground, there's probably some other stuff that we have to work on. So 100% <laughs> burpees, least favorite exercise. <laughs> burpees. All right. Last, last one, a little less fun maybe, but a little more serious. Uh, favorite and least favorite moment as a strength and conditioning intern. So thinking about this one, um, I don't know if I could really pick any one specific like favorite moment. I would say when I was interning at UW-Madison, I had three phenomenal coaches that I worked under. It was Kevin, Billy, and Jeff. Um, all of them came from different backgrounds. They all trained different sports. And so I was exposed to so many different things within uh, that realm. I had so many different uh, resources to go for. They had shelves of books. If there's any question that I had, any one of the three could easily end up answering it. So I definitely think my experience at UW-Madison kind of working under those three guys was I mean, some of the most beneficial time that I've had within my career. Um, I guess if I had to pick something within that, once they started uh, kind of trusting me a little bit more, they kind of knew my skill set as a coach. They started giving me like more redshirt athletes. So I had soccer athletes, I had um, track athletes to name a few, and uh, some rowers and stuff like that, that they would start giving me to be able to program for these specific athletes and run them through sessions. Um, Cause a lot of times they would be like redshirt athletes. So that was probably a, a very proud moment of myself when I started getting their trust to be able to start um, programming for some of the athletes that they were working with. Least favorite moment, I had a um, internship in Western Kentucky. I was working with Western Kentucky U University's football team. Football strength conditioning is definitely a little bit different world than a lot of other sports strength conditioning, especially at the collegiate realm. Uh, I kind of talked a little bit about discipline within like the private setting and the collegiate setting at the football setting in college discipline is huge uh there was certain times where uh guys would either show up late to a lift or say they didn't hit their uh their weigh-in or something like that and they would have to go through it was typically on wednesdays i think it was early in the morning uh myself one of the other strength coaches jake and then the other intern justin we would all end up getting to the facility a little bit before 4 30 in the morning We'd have to set up for about half an hour or an hour. I'd be drenched in sweat after doing that because Kentucky weather, even when the sun is not out, is insane. <laughs> I'm not a Southern person. Um, but for the punishment, uh, for the linemen, we had out on the field, there was these big homemade wooden sleds. There were three-man sleds. Two guys could not push them, even collegiate linemen. And a lot of times there would be uh, two linemen at a time that would have to go through punishment. Every single time, one of the strength coaches would be, all right, Brandon, hop in. <laughs> I, being an intern at a time, wouldn't really have a choice. And uh, I was I was bigger than uh, than Justin, too, because Justin was uh, – he played cornerback when he played football and stuff, and I was a little bit heftier at the time. I was <laughs> I was getting used to lifting a lot and uh, eating all the food that I could when I was there, and so I was probably about, like, 2.30 at the time, so <laughs> looking a little bit more like a lineman. And I don't know how many times I had to jump into these, these punishment drills and basically just drive the sled down 50 yards, turn around, drive it back. Not much of a breaks in between. I don't ever remember puking, but a lot of the guys I was with were puking. So, yeah, having to join in on those drills easily my least favorite part of uh, any internship that I've had. Nice. I love that that story, and I hope that someone represents what uh, a lot of, in my mind, college football strength and conditioning really is. Um, but Brandon, I really do appreciate your time today. Uh, where can people learn more about you and what you're doing? 
I'm not extremely active on social media anymore, um, but I do have an Instagram. If you just look up Brandon and then the number one STL, kind of little play on uh, our last name there, just first <laughs> and ol. Uh, again, Brandon Firstol, just like that on Instagram. Um, that's pretty much the only uh, only source I have right now. Nice. Well, maybe we'll have to get you some more, putting out some good information now that we kind of are too and can merge some of those. So, uh, um, great. We will get that in the show notes regardless, your Instagram handle, see if you can get some more follower, followers. Uh, but thank you again for your time and thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new that will help you achieve your goals. If you did, we would love for you to head over to Instagram and search MKE Sports Podcast. Like, follow, or comment on today's episode. If you have questions, comments, topics, or guest suggestions, reach out through that Instagram account. Your feedback will help us make this podcast as relevant and informative as possible. If you have additional time, we'd appreciate your help in spreading this information. If you could head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, it will help us spread the word to more athletes in the greater Milwaukee area. Have a great day, and we will see you next time.